0: I always wanted to have a thunderous voice, but not that way. As we look at this text this morning, then... super Thanks, Rusty. Well, this text this morning, then, I just want to kind of set the context so that you know some things here that are very important as we come to the text. You've been studying through Ephesians, and no doubt Matt set up the context to help you understand it. I want to kind of give you an idea of what Hebrews is about and then lead into our discussion. Well, some things to know about but we don't know who wrote it. We don't know that for sure. That's significant for us this morning as we think we write passage. These are people who have been persecuted Uh, this morning as we think about this passage. These are people who have been persecuted, uh, possibly from Rome, uh, but now they're exiled away from it. And uh, just kind of wrap your brain around that a little bit. You're at home, and you have to leave it because you're a follower of Christ. I I mean, we we love our homes, right? We pay our mortgages, we build things, we get established, and these people have been taken away from their homes. I want to read to you from Hebrews 10. It says this, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those imprisoned, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So these are people that are exiles. They've been thrown out of their homes, they've been persecuted, but they're people who are tempted. They're people who are tempted by weariness. We read about that in in chapter 2 and chapter 4, this this sense of just weariness in the battle and the struggle. You know, persecuted people, people who have suffered, maybe even you have suffered, And, and isn't it true that even in the midst of that suffering, there is great temptation to sin? Anybody been there? I have. A lot. And I recognize that I can focus my intention and with precision identify other people's sin against me. But I'm not so good at identifying the sin within my own heart. And that's why as we'll look at this passage, we'll see the covenant community is so important so that they can see what's going on in your life and speak to that with clarity. You can't see the cream cheese that you just got on your cheek yourself, right? You need somebody else to tell you that it's there. And so... The body of Christ. So people that, these are people that are tempted by weariness. So they're tempted by outright apostasy. We read about that in chapter 3, in chapter 4, chapter uh, 6 talks about it. And when you think about apostasy, these are people who have the body of truth. And, uh, and here it is. It's, it's fixed. It's in God's word. They've had the teaching of the apostles. And the word to apostasize means to move away. So they've moved away from the truth. So there's concern here in Hebrews about a moving away. And so there are people that are tempted by weariness, outright apostasy abounding around them. Uh, again, persecution as we looked at. And uh, so as we think about these people, these are people who, who are you know, struggling like you and I would. This is written almost as a sermon. It's not quite a sermon because you come to the end and there's, although there's not a greeting at the beginning, at the end there's a, a series of greetings, so this was to be read by the church. And by the way, you can read it, and I would commend this to you, front to back in 35 minutes. If you just start reading it out loud, you can do it in 35 minutes. That's not even fast. Like, you could just do it. So, you look at it, you may say, this is overwhelming, 13 chapters, and, and you got 35 minutes this afternoon, Right? And uh, So you could do that, but the writer here is concerned about these readers, and as you read through it, you'll find that he wants you to know some things from this book. First of all, he wants you to know about the superiority of Jesus Christ. Part of the apostasy that's coming their way is this idea that there's something better, there's something more than Christ that they need. That's heresy. That's apostasy. You need Christ, and you need Christ alone, not Christ plus anything else. And there's also an explanation throughout this letter to these people about the new covenant in Christ Jesus. You'll see, especially in chapters 8 through 10. And and what he's talking about is that the old covenant in the Old Testament temple uh, rules, the construction of the temple itself, all of the things that the people were to be doing. The, these were like a, a shadow. In fact, that's what he calls it in chapter 8. It's a shadow or, or like a model. And uh, anybody been in a church building program? And, uh, you know, the architect makes a model, right? A church building program, right? We are the church, the building that the church meets in. So you, you've got this model here, and everybody's pretty excited about it. They put it in the church foyer. Everybody's looking at it. and they, I mean, when they're the, and, But they're looking forward to what? The building. They don't, right? I mean, when the building's built, they don't sit there and continue to congregate around the model any longer, do they? No, they enjoy the building. And so these shadows, this model of what's in the past, um, these are all pointing to something far better. And it's the new covenant in Jesus Christ. These people are being tempted to go back to the old model and hang around the model or the shadow. That's ridiculous. But we do it too, right? <laughs> As we try to perform for God and fall back in, into this works mentality. There's many warnings throughout this passages. Things like, you become dull. Don't be like disobedient Israel. Listen to these words. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a warning. <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're the recipients of that letter and you're reading that, I mean, that's going to catch your attention, isn't it? And so this is a letter that's filled with warnings and, and exhortations and very strong language. The exhortations are to persevere, hold fast. It's repeated four times. We're to hold fast to our confidence and our hope, which is Christ. We're to hold fast to our confession, what we say we believe, because our only hope is Christ. Christ. We're to hold fast to the hope set before us. In other words, you're not going to receive it today. It's, it's something that is yet in the future. And as you're studying through Ephesians, you, you, you've sensed this already-not-yet kind of tension that's there, right? I mean, I mean there's progressive sanctification for a reason. I'm not where I ought to be, and there's more yet to come, and the Lord's doing this work in my life. And then we get to 1 John, and we recognize that not only is our sanctification taking place now, but when Christ returns, that ultimate sanctification will take place because we'll see him as he is. So we're in process, so there's this already not yet tension, and so there's a reward yet to So hold fast, hang on, don't give up. There's a reward yet to come. Then in chapter 10, he, he tells us our, um, we're to hold fast to our confession in light of his faithfulness. In light of his faithfulness. And he's faithful to his sheep. He died, he was buried, and he rose from the grave. In this, we'll find, in, in Hebrews, you'll find, if you take some time to read it, a call to obedience over and over and over again. And then there's an emphasis on God's revelation from beginning to end. He starts out with the revelation that's in Christ, and and he tells us that he's the living word, and then we have the recorded word, and our our need to respond to that recorded word in a faithful way. So he says in chapter 13, verse 7 and 8, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this emphasis on the word. And so in the flow of of the writer's sermon, whoever wrote it, he's exhorting them to hold fast. He says, and in the midst of that, he says this, and this is where we come to our passage today in chapter 11. And so if you're not there, turn there, Hebrews chapter 11. He, in essence, says, as you hold fast, you're not alone. You're not alone. In essence, he says, hey, look at these examples of faithful living in the midst of all of this stuff in this world that you live in. We need those, don't we? Um, We were talking earlier, someone, we had a conversation where we need these faithful models of people around us in all these different areas of our lives. And so the writer comes to chapter 11, and sometimes this is called the hall of what? Hall of faith, right? Kind of a play of hall of, of fame. And, and it is that. It's a hall of faith, and, and it shows us how faith is lived out. And sometimes we look at chapter 11, verse 1, and say, okay, so where's our definition of faith? And it says in verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of conviction of things not seen. And, and we kind of stop there and say, okay, there's a definition of faith. But, but I don't think the writer's as interested in defining faith as he is in illustrating it, in, in demonstrating. This is what it looks like. And so as we look at this passage, we we have these several panels of stories in chapter 11. We have creation, we have the pre-flood people, we have Abraham and the patriarchs, then we get to our section, and it's Moses and the Exodus, and then after that it's kind of a smorgasbord of, of prophets and others who have been faithful, suffered, and been faithful to the Lord, models of faithful living in Christ. And so this morning in this kind of interlude that you're having in your study of Ephesians, Matt asked me to take some time and exposit this passage that talks about Moses. And honestly, these these verses that are here for our mutual benefit, mine and yours alike, um, and, and for our care and for God's glory, these verses run counter to our American way of thinking, don't they? I mean, read them with me, if you will, again, and and look at chapter 11, verse 20. uh, Let's see, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And we live in a world that's just calling out and trying to compel us to live according to maybe some good things, right? A home, a car, relationship, a vacation, a retirement, whatever it may be, things that may even have some wisdom application in them, but if they become idols and they become where we become rooted and established, they become sin. And so he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, and he considered the reproach. You know what it means to be reproached, right? The folly of the cross in 1 Corinthians Uh, People looking at you and saying, that's ridiculous. Why wouldn't you do this or do that or live the way that we live? In fact, sometimes they even get antagonistic because they feel like that's a judgment against them, right? And so as you think about this passage then as we come here, it's a very anti-American kind of way of thinking. Moses lived in Egypt, and we live in this very Egypt-like America, right? Right? In a lot of ways. And, and, and so as we look at this passage and we look at the world around us, we recognize the world around us compels us to s- live in such a way as to have our, and I'm gonna, probably going to step on some toes, our best life now. But I mean, it's even in the church, right? The sense that somehow, you know, prosperity and health and wealth and all of this stuff has, has got to be a part of God's plan for me, too, and we have this expectation, and I want you to just understand that we are living in a unique day and age where there's a real sea change taking place, even in America. I was talking to a friend of mine, and his dad has been the pastor of their church for 60 years plus, from the same pulpit, preaching, faithful, and, uh, and loves God, loves his people. You would love to ha- I'd love for you to have him here. He's just a wonderful guy to hear preach and to teach and, uh, and yet his son said to him, you know, Dad, you have seen the best years of America. And we're in decline, right? It's just true. And, and so there's some good things about that too, aren't there? Because that's going to really shake us to our core and help us understand what is important. That's going to be helpful even with a passage like this today as we think about the future and taking a stand to live for Christ. And so... As we think about this, it's going to have an effect on the church, too, because as those preachers are out there preaching to have your best life now, and if you don't, you don't have enough faith, that's going to run counter to what the Bible has to say. And it's important for you to know that. It's going to be costly, and we're going to look at that as one of the points this morning. And so, as you think about that, too, our identity gets all tied up in ourselves and our things our identity, the very na- the notion of who we are, gets all tied up in all of, the, all of these Egypt-like things or American-like things. And, and so we define ourselves by our jobs, by our wants, by our desires, by our pursuit of the American dream. And again, these all look hauntingly reminiscent to Egypt, to eating leeks and onions by the Nile which is what the people of, Egypt, or people of Israel would say later on to Moses. Oh, that we could be sitting. I don't eat leeks and onions. Like, just eat them. But apparently that was a good thing. And they just cried out to Moses. Oh, that we could go back. This is hard. I want to eat leeks and onions by the Nile. And the world around us is, is calling for us to maybe not eat leeks and onions, but something else is calling us back to the world. And so today we want to talk about this important aspect of this passage. Genuine, so if you're taking notes, this is the main thing here, genuine fruit-bearing faith in the midst of conflict is going to, and there's going to be three points here, so genuine fruit-bearing faith in the midst of cosmic conflict is the title of the sermon, and number one, we want to see that genuine faith in Christ that's going to be fruit-bearing is seen in choices that establish your identity. Is that on the screen behind me? All right. Yes, no? Okay. All right, good. So you can write that down, and, and as I talk, uh, have some time to fill that in. As you think about identity, we talk about that, and we think about that in scriptures, um, and, and we think about it this way. It's who you are inside and out. In other words, it's my inner man, but it's seen outside in who I write checks to, who I spend time with, what I think about, what I talk about. And so our identity really is, is, is an inside-out kind of thing. It's who we are inside, and it's expressed outwardly. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. And I think you've been here recently. Ephesians chapter 4. If you've been in our counseling training, I probably have used this illustration. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, 22, it says to put off your old self. And it has the notion of taking off an article of clothing. Now, as you think about clothing, clothing can identify us, can't it? And so a lot of you have renovation T-shirts on. That identifies you as being a part of renovation. But if I was walking down uh, the, um, an aisle in a, in a grocery store, just shopping, and I had a white coat on, and a stethoscope, and uh, maybe some kind of name tag, you would identify me as something, right? What might it be? A, a doctor, a nurse, something. What did you say? A pharmacist. A pharmacist. Okay, yeah, because I'm in a grocery store. Yeah. So you're, but see, you're going to identify me as something. And so as you look at this passage, he says, put off. What he's saying is put off an identity. And then he goes on and he says this um, in uh, verse, continuing in verse 22, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And so this is a work of the spirit that you're participating in. So it's, it's not passive, but it's not going to happen without the work of the spirit. And so it's kind of a middle passive if you're into English and Greek and stuff like that. And so it's, it's happening to you, but you're participating in it. So your mind's being renewed and to put on the new self. So you're going to put on a new article of clothing that people are going to be able to identify you as something. And it says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you're putting on a new identity, and true righteousness and holiness is found in who? Christ. Christ. And so your identity is Christ. And so genuine faith in Christ is seen in choices that establish your identity. And so we see Moses here. We see him putting off and putting on something. Isn't it interesting that it says Moses chose the reproach of Christ. Like, he didn't even know Christ yet, right? But we do know he was looking for a redeemer. And so, listen to Exodus chapter 2, the story here. Uh, Moses, of course, as we read, you know, was born of Hebrew parents, was hidden, was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Um, But it says here in Exodus chapter 2, verse um, 24, by faith, I'm sorry, Exodus 2, um, 11 through 12, it says that one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. So there's his people. They're suffering under the hand of Pharaoh. He's making them uh, act in the capacity of slaves to accomplish his work. And so he sees his people. He looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people, he looked this way, and that, seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And that launched him with a new identity. I'm with my people, I'm with my God. And we can talk about the rightness or the wrongness that's kind of beyond this sermon this morning, but he flees to Midian and life becomes hard. I mean, he made a choice that took him from the palace to the desert in the wilderness in living with people who were really a people of reproach and so Moses identified himself with God and with the people of God and one of the things that will be true of every genuinely converted person is they will be seeing a renewal of their identity they'll be seeing a renewal you will be coming more and more like Christ every day and that's not an option in fact we just heard Martin Lloyd Jones say you're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. There's no in-between. Some people might try to teach that and preach that, but that's not what you see in the Scripture at all. It's certainly what you don't see here in Hebrews. And so as we think about this identity, it just kind of makes sense, because think of our uh, creation. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, we read these words. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we didn't lose that image-bearer status, but it was marred by sin. And so even your unbelieving neighbor bears the image of God, whether they recognize it or not. But our thinking is really messed up now, isn't it? And so there's the renewal of the mind we read about in Ephesians chapter 4. So as our minds renewed, we start thinking right about our identity as image bearers. That would make sense. And so it follows that as a believer in Christ, if our being image bearers marred by the fall, well, there should be some changes taking place that would reestablish the significance of our identity as image bearers, as men and women made in God's image. And so an evidence, again, of, of genuine conversion in genuine, genuine faith that's going to be fruit-bearing is that we will be increasingly looking more like Christ and identifying with him and with his people and saying, yes, I, those are my people, that's my God, and I'm, that's, I'm, I'm trying to look like, you know, a, um, you know, what's the saying, Um, oh, I can't think of it, chip off the old block, is that it? Something like that. I'm trying to look more and look more like my heavenly father. And so, Corber's have a Corbery appearance, right? My kids are like, oh, dad. (laughs) McBee kids have a McBee appearance. Your kids, if you have children, have an appearance like you, right? And, and, and so, we just understand that it should be no surprise that if we're born of God that we'll, we'll begin to look more and more like Christ. And I want to ask you a question. Isn't this really the essence of discipleship, right? I mean, we've wrongly promoted the notion that discipleship is just getting smarter about the Bible. I mean, we kinda, we've done that in churches. Maybe you've grown up in some of those churches where Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, which is good. Don't misunderstand me. We have to have the knowledge of who God is from his word. His law is perfect, revives the soul. But if we just leave it at the level of knowledge, Paul says what? Knowledge puffs up. We just become really conceited. I remember uh, there was a man in a church we were part of like years ago, and and he would come down the hallway and he had parsed some verse we'd preached on and we had gotten it wrong i mean right i mean it was just always you know i mean he just knew the greek better than we did and we see him coming down the hallway and we're looking for rooms to dive into we just couldn't take it um all the while having an affair on his wife right it just there's disconnect there but even just at a more, you know, probably closer to us level, we can be really smart about the Bible and just be kind of flatlined spiritually. But discipleship, discipleship, on the other hand, is taking that knowledge about Scripture and in, in the Savior and wanting to look more and more like the Master. In fact, Jesus tells us about that. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them... To observe, in other words, live a certain way. It, observe isn't just to think about and to make observations. Here, ob- observe means to go and live a certain way. So, to, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. To kind of give you a silly a- illustration, um, when uh, I was in seminary, we loved D.A. Carson. Right? D.A. Carson's a theologian who grew up in um, Canada, uh, French-speaking, British, kind of, you know, that kind of accent. And uh, he didn't say Isaiah. He said Isaiah. And so we loved D.A. Carson. And as silly as it sounds, you know what's coming, right? As seminary students, we no longer said Isaiah. We said Isaiah, right, (laughs) right? Isn't that silly? But that's that's a silly illustration, but that's kind of the way discipleship is. I want to talk like, I want to sound like, I want to look like the master. I want to be identified as looking like him. And so the evidence that your faith is in Christ, like Moses, you die to your interests. Think of all that Moses had. Uh, I don't know what it really looked like. I mean, I think life as a prince then probably wasn't as easy as life as a prince today, but I know it was a lot better than being the Hebrews making bricks. And so Moses, he, he gave up a lot, a prince of Egypt living comfortably, more so than the oppressed people that he would identify himself. And so Moses made a choice and he said, I will put aside that, Egypt, all of the blessings of that, and I'm going to identify myself with Christ his reproach, and all that that brings with the people that he has called at that time to to carry out his will. And so he died to his past identity and took on the identity of his God and his people. That's what genuine faith in Christ looks like. Think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If you you see your King James, God forbid, right? May it never be, by no means. How can we, we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as one who has been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under what? Grace. And so, the picture here for for, for Paul, as you've died to yourself, you're alive in Christ. He uses all kinds of imagery. He says, don't present yourself any longer to sin, but present yourself to a new master, right, which is Christ. And so it's not that now that you're free, that you're just free to live carefree and do what you want. You're free now to do what you were created to do, and that's to live for Christ. And so you identify with him. The, the picture some have suggested here is that presenting yourself has to do with kind of a military picture. And so, you know, if you're showing up to the commander, you, you know, salute and say, yes, sir, you know, what, what, are, what are my duties, sir? And you present yourself to them and say, what are my marching orders? And he's saying, no longer are you to present yourself to this world in sin for your marching orders. You present yourself to Christ. He's your new commander. Well, you've been traveling through Ephesians together for some time now, and uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, we won't read the whole passage, but um, he talks about, in this Trinitarian formula, all the blessings we have from the Father in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Good stuff, isn't it? And as you think about that passage, um, he, he describes who we are. We're blessed in, in Christ. In Christ, by the way, or in him, is like 11 times in that passage. So we're blessed in Christ. We're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We're adopted in the beloved. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be adopted by the beloved? And now we can call one another beloved, right? As we have this relationship, we're now sons and daughters. Christ is our brother. We're we're redeemed through his blood. And as I said, notice all the prepositions are all about being in Christ. And so our identity now is in Christ. Christ, and so Paul will later on say those words we looked at in Ephesians four twenty three and twenty four, where he talks about now we're to put off having our minds renewed and put on, and then turn to Ephesians five. At the end, by the way, if you you know in our Bibles and and you've probably figured this out already, sometimes those chapter breaks are really unfortunate, and I didn't even notice this one, but one of my kids pointed it out to me, and I'm so glad he did. I think that. Whole 417 goes through chapter 5, verse 2, and look at how he ends that discussion on putting off, putting on. Chapter 5, verse 1 Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so, who are you? You're blessed in Christ, you're chosen in him, you're adopted in the beloved, you've been redeemed through his blood all in Christ. And so therefore, that's going to have huge implications on how we act towards one another, or to put off that old self, put on the new self. And so how will people know that you look like the master? Jesus tells us, right, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have finished it for me. you know, love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are identified with me, that you're in Christ, that you're growing in your discipleship if you have love for one another. And so your identity, a disciple who's trying to look like Christ, and, and by his Spirit we will until that day when he comes, and we'll be like him in that final and ultimate way. Your identity is also wrapped up in being a part of the people who are disciples. The people who are disciples, the body of Christ, the covenant community. In fact, the writer of Hebrews' challenge here is really profound. Earlier in chapter 10, he exhorts them strongly and with great warnings listen to what he says you probably know these verses he says let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering so in other words they might have been wavering teeter-tottering on this for he who promised is faithful think about it you're persecuted and um to show up with a covenant community might be a little dangerous right they might come and do what take you away I had the privilege of, um, in our counseling ministry, of having a Chinese pastor come and sit with us and uh, listen in on the counseling. I heard a story about him. This is just, a, I don't know, six months ago. As he's preaching one Sunday morning, uh, the police came in. Now, this is not an official church. And they said, you have to cease and desist. And you know what he said? He says, not right now. I'm not done. Have a seat. We'll get to you later. <laughs> and you know what happened? He did. <laughs> And then he finished he said don't meet here again so they just relocated to another place but i mean dangerous stuff right other pastors that i've known who have gone over there to teach um, them have had to come in like back alleys at different times and all kinds of things taking place just to so that they can just have a meeting without having it disrupted by persecution so get that picture in your mind they've already been persecuted and so i'm not trying to just you know say so don't be so hard on them but try to get in their situation they're wavering. They're tempted. And here's the specific temptation, he says, uh, going on in that verse, he says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. I mean, does that, just thinking about that, that kind of makes a difference in your understanding, doesn't it? Not, not neglecting to meet together. But if they're afraid of the king, then maybe that's showing some heart issues, you know, that they haven't fully embraced the reproach of christ and that's what the writer of hebrews is concerned about not neglecting to meet together as is some, as is the habit of some but occur, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near get together meet regularly don't worry about the consequences and 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 in fact be more fearful of god and being obedient to him he goes on, and, and, and he's talking about more than just faithfulness to attendance, but he says these words in, in the final paragraph right after that talk about not neglecting to meet together. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery fur- fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's heavy duty. I mean, that's If you're neglecting the body of Christ, that might be saying something about your heart if you won't identify with them. So genuine faith means you identify with Christ and with his people. Again, some were not, but his extreme concern for them is that they would as an evidence of faith. And so if you remember where we began today, this chapter is not merely a definition of genuine faith, but a description of it. And this is one of the ways that it looks like you have faith in Christ. And so genuine faith in Christ is seen in choices that establish your identity. Before we move on to the next point, I want you to just kind of think through, you know, so how, like, what do I do with this? And have you ever had this experience? Hey, you look just like your father or your mother. Now, some of you are upset by that. (laughs) I can remember walking, watching my dad walk away one day saying, oh, man, I look just like him. Rats. <laughs> I'm okay with that now. It doesn't matter. But have you ever had that experience? Hey, you look just like your father or your mother. And as you think about that, that's what we want to have people start saying about us. And just think of all the scriptures. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Right? There's things that identify us as being... A part of God's family and being in Christ. And so you should ask the the question here today, would anyone say of you, they remind me of Christ? Or would anyone say he's a chip off the old block? Or uh, that person is looking more and more like Christ every day. The the world probably doesn't know how to verbalize that, right? But that's why it's so important for you to be a part of the body of Christ, because they can. And they can say, hey, you know what? I really notice how God is growing you in this area. I'm so thankful to God. That's how Paul talked about the body of Christ. That's how we should encourage one another as well. Answer so this question too, just thinking about that Ephesians 5, where we're to imitate God. How are you doing at forgiving? Are you, are you good at forgiving those who have hurt you within the body of Christ? You ought to be working on that. that that's a mark that you're imitating God. We're to be busy about Matthew 22 where he says we're to love God with our entire being and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that loving our neighbor, by the way, is a full-throated, you know, full-breath love where we aren't just being nice and sentimental and soppy over here, but we're willing to come along and exhort them as we see difficult things taking place or even sin in their lives. And so that kind of love. Well, genuine faith in Christ means we choose to identify with him and with his people. But just as it was with Moses, it will be with us as well. It is costly. And so our next point is this. Your identity in Christ will immediately put you in a cosmic conflict. War. (laughs) And that's a good thing. And we'll talk about why. But as as soon as you identify with Christ, as soon as Moses identified with the people of Israel and with the God of Israel, he was in cosmic conflict. Your conflict may not be of the same scale or size of Moses, but I want you to hear this. The cosmic conflict, the war you enter into when you identify with Christ, is not just some minor skirmish or some minor issue that has no relevance to the greater kingdom that conflict within your own heart first of all and and so there's there's a war going on in your own hearts isn't there Um, paul says in romans 7 that which i would not that i do that which i would i do not (laughs) i mean he's in the battle too you're in the battle where you you know there's things you're like oh lord help me to overcome that difficult sin in my life And so there's a war, there's a conflict taking place in your own heart. Uh, um, Let's see. When you were in chapter 4 of Ephesians, uh, he talked about uh, putting off anger, right? Do you remember studying that? And he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And that word opportunity means to establish a beachhead. Anybody see Saving Private Ryan? And, uh, and what, what did they do at Normandy? They established a beachhead so that they could then go in and, uh, and eventually conquer Germany. But they had to, they had to get a foothold. They had, to, they had to have that opportunity to be able to replenish troops and get supplies, and, and they, but they had to have that. And, and so in a negative sense, when you don't resolve anger biblically, you, establish a, you let Satan establish a foothold. And those tentacles reach into the rest of your life. And so you see that conflict there, even taking a place in our own hearts. How tempted are we when we've been sinned against to let Satan get a foothold and become bitter, right? And so as you think about the conflict, it's real. That conflict with your spouse, your child, your parents, is the stuff that Ephesians is made of, right? Ephesians 4, chapter 1, walk worthy according to the call with which you've been right so all the stuff you read in chapters one through three going on and and you'll be studying chapter five verse 22 i think or 23 next week and and starts talking about relationships between husbands and wives and uh, between children and parents and if you haven't noticed in the news there's a cosmic conflict around the issue of marriage right now and is there any surprise to that Why wouldn't that be a a major battlefront issue in the world around us today? Because it says in Ephesians that a relationship between a husband and wife points to Christ in his relationship with his people. And so this is a cosmic conflict. This is a war that's taking place. And when you say, I'm going to believe what the Bible has to say about marriage, or I'm going to believe what the Bible has to say about all of these relationships, and I'm going to live that way, you're immediately in conflict with the world around you. Now, that doesn't mean you go out with a sign. Don't misunderstand me. But what it does mean is, as you have those conversations and you try to develop relationships, just the very notion that you would think that way is in opposition to the world around you. It might bring you into open conflict with people, but the fact that you believe it alone means you're in conflict with the world around you. The conflict is, is greater in the world around us, too. I think of those pharmacists in California where, in order to maintain their license, they must... They must distribute the morning-after pill. So they have a choice. They can hand in their license. And I know there's pharmacy school, right? Yeah. Expensive? Yeah. So, I I mean, so, okay, choice to either give up a career or move, right? I mean, those are the kinds of decisions that people are going to have to make um, as a result of identifying with Christ. And and we don't dare forget those who are facing real physical persecution around the world, because that's happening too, isn't it? And I hope you do pray for the persecuted church around the world. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us to. He, He says that we're to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. You know what it means to be hurt physically, right? You've cut yourself, you've broken a bone. That hurts have somebody else doing that you can under you get it we ought to be praying for those who are in that cosmic conflict in a very real physical tangible way that cosmic conflict started in the garden and uh, that one who would crush the serpent's head comes to the earth as the god man and says these opening words at the beginning of his ministry and I don't know that we sense the cosmic conflict here, so we want to talk about that. But here are his words, Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you think about that, you might be thinking, that's the guy in the street corner with the sign, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you just think, some nutty guy. Jesus' words here meant so much more to the people than that were listening. When you said the kingdom of something was there, then, then that means the presence of an army. And so you need to hear shields clanging, uh, you know, um, uh, whatever they're wearing, right? You know, just rattling uh, swords, you know, horses, dust, the pounding of men marching. That's what he's saying. Repent, for there's an army coming, and you're either going to submit to it and agree with it or be destroyed by it. That's, a, that's war, isn't it? that's warfare kind of language. And so as Jesus says this, it reminds us that that we are in this cosmic conflict. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this is the language of taking sides in a conflict. Submit to the king of heaven or prepare to be destroyed. And as you've been studying Ephesians, the the first ones to read this understood this conflict in profound ways. Um, I think of Artemis. uh, The temple of Artemis was in uh, uh, in, um, in Ephesus. And the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world, so it was like, you know, it was, it's huge. And I think you can go there and see the ruins of it today with all the colonnades and, and all the, you know, different things that would make you see that and go, wow. And, and in fact, um, if you were going to do banking in Ephesus, that's where you would go. There was no FDIC to guarantee your funds. Artemis the goddess Artemis would guarantee your funds. That's the way they thought. That's the way they believed. And so can you imagine the challenges for you as a believer just wanting to conduct business in under that atmosphere? And then I think of Paul as he identifies himself as a Christ follower. In, in, in Acts chapter 19, 28 through 34, you can read the story. But when Paul went to, to Ephesus, there's, you know, this, you know, these people who also identified with Christ. They heard the message. As the word of the Lord went out, they responded to it, and they embraced Christ. And uh, this was becoming an issue, and the whole, you know, crowd runs to the amphitheater, and they cry, Great is Artemis! Not for two minutes. Not for 20 minutes. They cry it for two hours so if you want to do something fun today just go home and say great is jesus for about two minutes you're going to be weary right (laughs) i mean i mean but that's commitment isn't it great is artemis for two hours by the way the weariness will be gone and heaven will shout great is jesus for eternity right or holy 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 or something and in without with joy but here they are i mean conflict right in front of the uh believers in ephesus And so the opponents of the gospel, the opponents of Christ, as they're crying out, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, they understood it. They understood the cosmic conflict. And yet, Paul says, in the midst of that conflict, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. And so the conflict isn't just the bigger stuff taking place. It's in our own hearts. And so there's this conflict that's taking place. And so the, go- the opponents of the gospel in, in Ephesus, there's opponents of the gospel right here around us and even in our own hearts. There's a conflict that takes place. And so the challenge to you today is choose to leave Egypt behind and its citizens, but understand this. You will find that you are immediately in a cosmic conflict, a battle, a war, and it, and it, wasn't, that it wasn't there before. You just didn't notice. Because the world has this way of trying to superficially hide the conflict that exists and make you feel like, like pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, in Vanity Fair. Everything's okay. There's no judgment coming. You know, come and enjoy the delicacies of this world around you. And they're just putting blinders and blinkers on to avoid the inevitable truth that there's a holy God who's been offended by his creation but who has also sent a Redeemer. So repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at near. Embrace Christ. Well, you won't be able to withstand the mighty army of God. You'll perish eating leeks and onions and worshiping the false gods of this world. But join the battle, and it is a battle, and there is suffering that comes with it, And there are trials and injuries and tears and straining and loss of relationships and loss of income and loss of life. But Jesus said these words, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus prepared his disciples for the conflict when he said these words. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so understand that it's a good thing from the standpoint that if you're being hated because you're a follower of Christ, that's a good thing to know that your identity is in Christ. It's also a good thing to know that he is the one who is our eternal reward. We'll look at that in a moment. In your Ephesians, you read about these words. Think how meaningful they were for people who lived under the shadow of Artemis. Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And if you're under something's feet, like think of that bug you squashed this morning or last night, right? Did it submit to you? Did it have a choice? It didn't. And so that dominion and power and authority... And, and so under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, you could then, we could go on to Ephesians six ten through 20 and talk about the warfare. I just will commend that to you to look at later. But he tells us to put on the whole armor of God, fighting the schemes of the devil. And, and we're, we're not fighting flesh and, and blood, but we're fighting cosmic powers. There may be physical consequences, right? That person in Syria who lost their life because they're a follower of Christ, there was a physical consequence. But Paul's saying, you know, that, that, there's a battle far greater than just whether we live or die. Because remember, if our hand, our soul is in the Lord's hand, we're safe. We're safe. And so the, the battle is one that began in the garden when these four words were uttered if they use the ESV in Genesis, (laughs) right? Did God actually say? And the battle was on. The battle was on. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, strap on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes that aren't converse, so the readiness of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. But notice, and don't forget this one, a lot of times I think we neglect it, prayer. Don't forget that one. John Piper says this in in his talk on missions, I think. Prayer is the communication by which the weapons of warfare are deployed according to the will of God. Prayer is for war. Prayer is for war. We're in a conflict. Uh, John uh, Piper goes on to say that a wartime mentality will change our prayers from being domestic intercoms. Hey, honey, can you bring me down a Pepsi? Right? Right? to walkie-talkies. God, I'm taking fire. I need some help here, <laughs> right? Help me to be bold in the midst of it. And so you can see that that if we have that mentality, it's going to change the way we pray. And so if you understand the cosmic conflict you're in, praying for Egypt-like stuff will not only be unimportant, it will be shameful and embarrassing. I was preaching at a church down in North Carolina several years ago, and it was from Psalm I, don't, I can't remember which psalm it was, but but it was a psalm that talked about how to pray and what to pray for. And uh, this dear old lady came in. So, you know, as you age, think about this, you can still be growing at 70 or 80 because she was that. In fact, I think she's with the Lord now. And she says, oh, that is just so convicting because my prayers are just gimme, gimme, gimme. <laughs> right? I mean, and and it's gimme, 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 Egypt-like stuff so often. And so... You won't pray for your career, but you'll pray for what career God would have you to promote His kingdom. You won't pray for healing so that you can just feel better. You'll pray for healing so that you can expend your health for the gospel. If you're praying for Aunt Sally's big toe, it won't be so she just feels better, but so she can put on the shoes of the gospel and carry it to the nations. You see, it's going to change the way you pray. Well, Moses immediately found himself in conflict by choosing the reproach of Christ, and you will too. But listen to Jim Elliott's words 60 years ago. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's why we can say, yes, I'm in a conflict with the world around me, and it's not just that God has my six. He has already demonstrated the outcome of this conflict by raising Christ from the grave, conquering sin and death. And so, as you go through the Book of Acts, uh, you just see that as the apostles are preaching and teaching. I don't know if it's exclusive, but I think it's just about every time the gospel is presented, it is always it is always driving them to the resurrected Christ, not just Christ, but the resurrected Christ. And so. As you think about this conflict, raising Christ from the grave, conquering sin and death is so significant because he has promised the same for all who would trust in him. And so your recent, you'll be the recipient of the blows of this world for being his follower. These are just merely signs that you will also partake of that same resurrection. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Well, then the question is, and this brings us to our third point, how do you prepare? And, and there's an aspect in which you can't. It must be who you are, right? That inner man. You must be a believer already. That spirit must be at work within you. You must be genuinely in Christ. Otherwise, you can try, right? There are people who try. Um, but unless you're in Christ, you're merely an imposter. In, in fact, it's sad as you read uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and he says... Um, you know, um, that uh, people can actually give their body to be burned, but if they have not love, it's nothing? Aren't those scary words? I mean, that, that you know, or, or the person who comes before the Lord, 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 did I not prophesy in your name um, and cast out demons? And he says, what? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Th- those are scary words. And so, you could be an imposter, But you need to not be. You need to embrace Christ in faith. That's a work of the Spirit. So how do you prepare? Well, embrace Christ, become a worshiper of His, and like Moses, make Him your reward. You see, you can't just train harder, you know, go to boot camp, um, and try to become more proficient with the weapons without first being committed to the commander. Right? And, and, and to be in allegiance with him and say, he is my reward. I'm doing this for him, and I know that he, whatever happens, will raise me from the grave. So genuine faith, point number three, makes choices that reflect that Christ is your reward, not the fleeting temporary pleasures of your Egypt, whatever it may be. You see, ultimately, this is all about worship. Think of Matthew six twenty one. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, In one of Michelle's older Bibles, I don't think she's got a new journaling Bible like I have, but in one of her older Bibles, she went through and circled every, not circled, she put a heart around every place she found the word heart in the scripture. And it's amazing. Like, there's very few pages you can turn to, you don't see, the action of the heart, and so Psalm one thirty nine, search me and see if there's any wicked way where in my heart. Right, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? God knows it. You know the the um, you know just all the scriptures that talk about our hearts and our hearts' um, action towards you know Christ. That's what's at issue here: is my heart turned towards Christ, and is that what my heartbeat is for? Is Christ and worship of Him and love of Him. Is, that, is he my treasure? In at Matthew 13, we read these words: "The kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure hidden in a field, which man a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field." And don't doubt the neighbors are going. That guy's nuts. <laughs> Why would he do that? And so, but notice what he did. He he did something costly. He went sold all that he had in order to have that treasure. That's worship. <laughs> and so as you think about Christ and as you think about Moses and his reward, he said, listen, I'm going to embrace Christ and his sufferings because I love him and because I love the God who, who has, has saved me, and, and I'm going to worship him. I'm going to think about him, and it can be costly. I think of a young lady that uh, we knew back in Lafayette, Indiana. We had a large ministry there to international students. It was quite the privilege and um, one of the ladies, um, her, her brother was successful. I think, I don't know, her siblings were successful. I can't remember who they were. And it's, it's a pretty big honor to come to America and go to Purdue University. And and uh, she found Christ, or Christ found her, right, and made her a new person. And her mom and dad were really upset because, you know what, she was going to marry a missionary. <laughs> you want to talk about the most unsuccessful thinking you know, in their minds, person you could have. You know, he's, what? <laughs> You're going to give up your, your career as an engineer? And she, you know, she, she I, I don't even know if she graduated. She didn't graduate. I mean, they were devastated because she wasn't seeking after Egypt anymore. She was following Christ. She was a worshiper of Christ. Costly. Put her in conflict with her parents. But I'm reminded of, of this, you know, analogy of she, she sold it all because there was a treasure in a field. She loved it. She ordered her life around it. That's what it means to worship. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, you, Renovation, you, Jim Corber, you cannot serve God in money or God in something else. God in Egypt, right? You can't be a Christian. uh, uh, You can't be partly a Christian, right? I mean, you're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. Dr. Jones just told us that, and the scriptures tell us that. God will not be co-regent with anything in your life. And so the people of Israel tried to have both God and Egypt. I mean, think even as they left Egypt, and as as Moses is on Mount Sinai, what did they do? They made two... Golden calves. And by the way, it's kind of in question as to what they were trying to do there. Those golden calves were probably a means to worship Yahweh, right? But they were doing it on their terms, not on God's terms. And they were sub gods, so they had more gods than the one true God. And it was a mess. And they weren't worshiping. They were trying to have both the world and God. And then later on, Jeroboam is given the assignment of leading the northern kingdom by God. And so what does he do? Does he run to God? He ran to Egypt. (laughs) And guess what his first order of business was when he came back? Two golden calves. So that they would no longer worship in Jerusalem, but in Samaria. See, God will not be co-regent. But the tendency of our hearts is to try to do both, isn't it? And we need to recognize that. The issue here is worship. We need to be people who think about Jesus. We need to be people who love Jesus. Christ and what he stands for in his kingdom. We need to make it the song of our hearts, right? We need to make him the one that we order our lives around. In other words, worship is the response of who we are to all that he is, and it's not just singing on a Sunday morning. It's how we think about our careers, our relationships, our jobs, our decisions to buy a car, not buy a car, You name it, all the mundane things of life. Well, let's be like Moses, who identified himself with Christ, because we know that to stay in Egypt is to merely enjoy a temporary city. Later on in Hebrews 13, we read these words, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, Christ. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Answer these questions today. Do I look more like Jesus today or more like my friends in Egypt? That'd be a good way to investigate your heart. Does my identity include an identifying with people whose common bond isn't wealth or sports or ethnic background, but Christ? And I need them and they need me. They're my people. Do I see the conflict swirling around me or am I living in the false sense of security found in Egypt? Because Egypt's really good about giving you a false sense of security. Is Christ my treasure? Is He my reward? Are you being apprenticed to look like Him? Are you? Are, are you willingly, actively seeking out uh, people in, in relationships that will help you look more like Christ? Do you spend your energy, your effort, your resources in the things that interest him? Do you dream about him, his coming, his kingdom, ways to serve in his kingdom? I mean, just there's we have such a media saturated culture. I, you know, the Lord of the Rings movies came out and they like just blew our circuits with all their uh, high tech media, right? I mean, cool stuff. And I was just thinking about that as, as we watched all nine hours, like, repeatedly, because we love the Lord of the Rings. You know, heaven, like, like, like there's nothing in that that's even comparative to the, the glories and the f- wondrous things we're going to see in Christ. And, and have you thought about the fact that, that while we look at armies and militaries and all the cool stuff and, that they wear and, and you know, uh, shoot at people <laughs> and stuff, you know, as cool as that may look, Christ's army is much better equipped. And if you're a follower of his, I mean, think of this. You are gathering here at Renovation Church today. This is a kingdom outpost. I mean, really, not just in theory, it is. Now, the conflict isn't bullets and guns. It's my heart. It's my relationships with other people, both here and in the church. But it's a real conflict, and you are a part of God's provision of refuge and safety in a military outpost for his kingdom in the advance of his kingdom. Do you like think about, just dream about that a little bit and think about what what, what does that mean? Uh, you know, what's taking my attention away from those things? And so those are some questions to ask. Do you sing songs about him as you drive? I mean, just be that crazy person that the guy at the stoplights looking at you like, man, he's crazy, or he's happy, right? But you know, do you sing songs about the Savior? As you, as you think about military, you know, pursuits and endeavors, they have songs, don't they? And uh, you watch the movies in the, the soldiers singing and things. Well, we ought to have songs too. In fact, as you think about Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians, in the midst of this war, we to do what? Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I take that to mean I'm to sing to bless you and you're to sing to bless me as we sing these truths to one another. And so do you sing songs about him as you drive, as you're here? Or are your dreams of things in Egypt? Moses put aside Egypt and he chose instead to bear the reproach of Christ, having no lasting city here, looking forward to his eternal reward, Christ. How about you? Is is he your reward? Even the book of Ephesians can quickly turn into a self help book to look good in the Christian community if Christ is not the center of your life. Right? I can be a pretty good looking husband to the people around me, but if Christ isn't your center, then you'll be like that one who stands before the Lord and says, Lord, did I not prophesy? Was I not a good husband for you? And he could say, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And so as you think about that, that's serious. So, but let me say this, just in fin- my final words here, the hope is not being better; it's not doing more; it's being in Christ. We often quote this verse in evangelism to scare people, right? At least I did growing up. Maybe you, Matt's taught you far better than this. <laughs> but we would say this: just as it's appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, right? We stop there. You know, and the idea is, man, it's coming. You better get saved before it happens, right? There's so much more. Listen to the rest of the passage. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. That's already been done on the cross. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Isn't that an incredibly encouraging passage? And so repent if you've used it to try to scare people. (laughs) And recognize that this is a passage for believers. Listen, Christ is coming, and he is coming for those who are eagerly waiting for him. Like Moses, they've said, I'm going to identify with you. I mean, they're waiting, and the bullets are flying, and the conflict's swirling around them. But they're waiting for Christ, and he will come. And he'll either raise you from the grave, or he'll take you when he comes, however that works out. To be with him and the battle's over. So today, genuine faith is gonna look like something, isn't it? It's going to be finding our identity in Christ. It's going to be engaging in the conflict willingly and gladly, knowing it's a good thing. And it's going to be understanding that to be prepared for all of this, we must be worshipers who see Christ as our reward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day that we could gather around your word and look at what you have for us in the book of hebrews and i'm just so grateful that uh, matt and the gang here are going through ephesians i pray that you would take your word and plant it deep in their hearts as they seek to live in this world that um, is sideways and contrary to you and yet help them to be a joyful um, body that is pointing To the magnificence of jesus christ that their identity in him and their love for him uh, would be compelling and a a sweet thing to the community around them and that you would save those who you've called into your kingdom through this ministry here but father help us as we think about moses we know he struggled with a lot of uh, issues in his life he was not perfect and i know every one of us here we are not perfect too and so we would just look to you humbly and longingly for your help and your strength to accomplish your will for your name's sake. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.